where telling the truth in a time of universal deceit is a revolutionary act. So lots to talk about this episode. Um, it's a little lengthy, but the, but the interview is totally worth it. Trust me. The big hot topics, obviously, for the last couple of weeks have been the protests and police reform, and there's really been some movement on changing things, the discussion about defunding the police, and um, all of those things have come to the fore. And so I thought it was really important to bring someone on who has a unique perspective on everything that's been going on. So my guest this week is a 20-year retired veteran of the NYPD, retired as a lieutenant. He has a PhD from Fordham University. He teaches criminal justice as a professor at Pace University, um, and he's also black. So he has a very, very unique perspective on what's going on. His name is Darren Porcher. So he is coming up in a few minutes and um, it's a conversation you just don't want to miss because it's uh, he has some unpopular opinions, but that's okay because that's what we need. Oftentimes you don't get um, well-rounded opinions in the mainstream media because sometimes there's an agenda. And so here on my podcast, I want to make sure that I bring factual, balanced information to um, the issues of the day. So definitely stay tuned for the upcoming conversation with uh, retired Lieutenant Darren Porcher. So a um, couple things that have been going on. <laughs> I just want to give a shout out to the Lincoln Project. Uh, as many of you know, I am a senior advisor for them. And the Lincoln Project has been cranking out ads, just needling Donald Trump. We are really, really getting under his skin. It's glorious. So if you haven't followed the Lincoln Project, please do check out what we're doing. Um, you can find it at Project Lincoln on Twitter, uh, lincolnproject.us online. Check out our ads. Uh, we've gone after Trump on his health. Uh, if anybody saw how strangely he was walking down a ramp at West Point during the graduation ceremony there, very odd. He had difficulty drinking a glass of water. It was just weird. So of course, you know, someone who's always talking about how feeble Joe Biden is and would make fun of Hillary Clinton during the 2016 election, um, he's showing some signs of aging there. So, you know, we're just, some people thought that it was juvenile to go after that, but it's, it's to drive Trump crazy so that he does things and behaves in a way that we can point out is just unfit for the office of the presidency. We're giving him a dose of his own medicine. So um, that's just one. We have another ad that came out tar targeting China because Donald Trump, um, we found out, thanks to the Bolton book, which I'll get to in a minute, that uh, Trump has been rather friendly to China, even though he goes after Biden claiming that he's more friendly to China. No, Donald Trump and China and the trade deals and what he's been willing to do and sell our country out just to get uh, gain favor with China so he can claim victory in a trade deal has been just disgusting. So, um, of course, we went ahead and put out an ad. So uh, it's, it's, it's nonstop. We are definitely, as Rick Wilson says, keeping our foot on the gas until November 3rd to help try to get Trump out of there. Um, one other thing, the Lincoln Project just launched a new podcast. So I'm cross-promoting. Um, it's called Republicans Defeating Trump, and the first guest was George Conway, another uh, founder of Lincoln Project. 
and I am the second episode, which is also out now. And during this episode, um, I, I talk about if I had five minutes with Donald Trump, what would I say to him? So I talk about lots of other stuff too. Um, but that is <laughs> uh, pretty unique. It was off the top of my head and, um, I, I think you'll enjoy it. So if you get a chance, check out the re- new podcast Lincoln projects putting out called Republicans defeating Trump. Um, and shout out to all those guys over there. Um, I really enjoy working with them and I'm, I'm just thrilled to see how quickly the movement is growing and how many people are supporting our effort to get Donald Trump out of office. Um, so speaking of that, John Bolton, I am just over John Bolton and I am furious with him because he chose not to testify during the impeachment hearing. However you feel about John Bolton's foreign policy, his mustache, his goofiness on Fox and Friends when he went there, he's not a dumb guy, okay? He's actually a very smart guy. You don't have to agree with his foreign policy, but he's no dummy. He's not some third-rate wannabe like a lot of other people who Donald Trump surrounds himself with or who came out of the woodwork during Trump's uh, administration. And he spent 18 months as Trump's national security advisor, and it was a tumultuous 18 months. A lot of things went on at that point, and I believe he was the fourth, third, fourth national security advisor, third maybe by then. And he decided to write a book instead of doing the patriotic thing and testifying. You know, the House committee could have subpoenaed him and sued, but his his deputy was going through something similar. He was he went to court about whether he had to testify or not, whether the subpoena was enforceable. His case got um, uh, the results of his case. I now I actually can't remember if it got dismissed or what happened, but something happened with his case that made the House uh, impeachment committee say, "Well, screw it. If this is what happened there, they're not going to compel him to testify. We're not going to waste months and months tied up in court going after Bolton." Now, Bolton could have testified voluntarily. He did not need a subpoena to do it, but he chose not to so that he could look like the reluctant witness. So he would still have some street cred with the conservatives. Well, when the Senate trial came around, the Senate decided that they were going to vote against any more witnesses. And Bolton was like, listen, I'll testify in front of the Senate committee if you subpoena me. And only Mitt Romney and Susan Collins voted to have further witnesses. So the Senate trial was a complete sham. Mitch McConnell ran interference for Trump and Bolton ended up never testifying. Well, we knew that he knew some stuff and he was pretty pissed off when he resigned. Trump claims he fired him in September of 2019. This was right around when the Ukraine shit was hitting the fan Also, right after there was reports that Trump was going to invite the Taliban to Camp David to try to broker a peace deal with them, which was insane. Okay, they're fucking terrorists. So it was just so I guess it finally was enough. And apparently also what was going on with Ukraine, with Trump trying to withhold the security aid in order to get Ukraine to open up investigations into Biden. All of those things finally came to a head and Bolton was out of there. Well, he was pretty pissed off about it, wrote a book and decided that it was worth the $2 million book advance that he got. That was more important than doing the patriotic duty of testifying 
and letting the American people know under oath how incompetent and how dangerous Donald Trump is. So I'm over John Bolton, to be honest with you. Some say it wouldn't have mattered because the Senate Republicans had their minds made up. They were never going to remove Trump. Perhaps. But Bolton should have still testified. And if they couldn't, if he wouldn't testify, they wouldn't let him in the Senate, then you go and you sit down for a tell-all interview with 60 Minutes or whomever and you spill it. I think my, my, one of my best friends and I, we talk all the time, he was like, I think he would have sold more books if he would have done that. I, I think he's right. I think, or the speeches he would have gotten, the, the money, I just think that he still would have been able to reap financial rewards if he had done the right thing. But that, you know, shouldn't be the motivation. I'm very curious to hear his explanation at this point why he chose this route. Because even though his book has revealed so far, I mean, I haven't, I will not spend one red cent on it. Um, if someone wants to give me a copy, I'll look at it, but he's not getting a cent out of me. I'm not going to contribute to that. But excerpts have been coming out left and right, left and right. The book comes out on the 23rd and the excerpts are disturbing enough. <laughs> Everything, I mean, not that disturbing to me and those of us who have been warning about Donald Trump being a freaking insane person, incompetent, dangerous, authoritarian wannabe. We've been telling you this. For years, Helsinki should have been it in 2018. That should have been the final straw where he cozied up to Putin and contradicted our intelligence community and denied that Russia was was meddling in the election. I mean, (laughs) it couldn't have been any more obvious. And then that farce with North Korea and the love letters with Kim Jong-un. This shit is insane. We didn't need John Bolton's book to tell us that. We saw it with our own freaking eyes. But... You know, people, some people just, I, I don't know. They just were desensitized to it. And I, I just feel like there is no, there is no bottom. There is no low that this man will not sink to. So I'm not shocked. It's just another, another uh, notch in the belt of we told you so. But the excerpts are pretty, they, you know, they're pretty shocking. Even when you hear them again, um, the whole thing with North Korea, there is a, an excerpt where, Trump was obsessed. This is all according to Bolton, who, and the name of the book is uh, A Room Where It Happened. If anybody's seen Hamilton, you know the reference. Um, Pretty snazzy book title, I will admit. But anyway, so Bolton was there. He was literally in the room where it happened for a lot of these foreign policy uh, meetings and things. He claims that, you know, Trump, remember, he was calling Kim Jong-un Rocket Man. And then it became all... uh, you know, hugs and kisses, they became best buddies. And Trump goes over and steps foot on North Korean soil. And what a spectacle that whole thing was. Remember that? And they did this like this movie trailer thing to show Kim Jong-un and with the potential of, of turning North Korea into a tourist destination. Remember that? I mean, we forget there's so much shit that happens all the time. We forget some of the crazy stuff that has happened under this president. Well, in Bolton's book, he claims that Trump was obsessed with getting a signed copy of the song Rocket Man, the CD, signed by Elton John to personally give Kim Jong-un. And that the whole thing, he was obsessed with the theater production of it all. <laughs> Why is anyone surprised? He is a reality show man. Reality TV, that's what made Donald Trump. Every day is a production. Every day is a new episode. Meanwhile, you're doing this with a... And a murderous tyrant who has nuclear weapons. 
Who cares about what the foreign policy implications are? Who cares about the stability in the region? Who cares about our allies in South Korea? I mean, in Japan. And and it's just mind-boggling. Just mind-boggling. And Bolton claims that Trump never operated in the best interest of the United States. Everything was about his own personal interests, his own re-election and maintaining power. No shit. <laughs> no kidding. He said that in this book and part of the excerpts talking about how he was mad at the House Impeachment Committee because they should have explored other corrupt acts by Trump beside just Ukraine, that he actually uh, solicited China to help him win the election. He was there when he asked them to help uh, guarantee he wins, how he was willing to do anything to get a trade deal, how he was completely okay when President Xi Jinping of China um, was talking about concentration camps that he set up for the Uyghurs, who are an ethnic Muslim ethnic minority in China that are being rounded up and like two to three million of them are in freaking concentration camps. It is an unbelievable human rights violation in China. And Trump was like, yeah, whatever. It's the right thing to do. What? If you've never heard of the Uyghurs, I understand. I hadn't heard of Uyghurs either until 2006 when I went to work for Congressman Rohrabacher, who was very interested in human rights. And he became an advocate for Uyghurs that got sent to Guantanamo Bay. They got caught up in a terrorist sweep in Afghanistan. They were not terrorists and they were innocent. And I was like, what the hell is a Uyghur? But I had no idea that there was this ethnic minority of uh, Muslims that live in a remote part of China. And uh, yeah, so he advocated to help get them repatriated to other countries so they could live freely. And once China realized that Trump didn't give two shits about human rights, guess what they've been doing? All kinds of more human rights violations, including the Uyghurs. But the fact the president of the United States was like, yeah, whatever, to concentration camps is, should scare everyone. That should scare everyone. Should scare the shit out of everyone. Because he doesn't care about the, the same things that normal Americans do, you know, and it, it's exhibited. You know, we've already said that he's a wannabe authoritarian just by the way that he behaves and how he circumvented the Constitution on things. And look at what he did on June 1st by sicking the police and the National Guard on peaceful protesters, ca gassing them and, sh and violently removing them from Lafayette Square so he could walk across the damn street for a photo op with the Bible in front of the in front of. Um, St. James Church, come on. I just, it's so frustrating. It really, really is. And people still defend this guy. So, you know, the Bolton book is going to, it's, it's I mean, it's going to make waves. The Trump administration's trying to block it. They cannot block his publication. The, the Supreme Court decision in the Pentagon Papers back in the 70s basically made it clear that this is a First Amendment issue. Uh, but they're going after him directly, not as publisher, saying that Bolton violated his NDA and uh, it's a breach of contract, which I guess brings up other legal issues for Mr. Bolton. But that's his freaking problem. He should have testified. And, you know, that's how I feel about that. I really feel that there's zero excuse, no excuse for him not doing it. But at least we're, we're going to know now. Trump calls him a wacko. He's been tweeting incessantly and I'm like so you're the one who hired this quote wacko 
everyone who who he hires who had some respectability who leaves and then speaks honestly about yeah things were not great and they're honest about how incompetent and insane Trump is and there there are wackos they're wackos they're liars it's all false stories yeah okay you hired them buddy it's not them it's you <laughs> so that's that um one more couple more things before i bring in uh retired Lieutenant Darren Porcher. I just got to talk about the, the Juneteenth rally in Tulsa. Um, guess what folks, COVID-19 has not mysteriously gone away. Donald Trump, no matter how much he wants to wish it away, how much he wants to ignore it, um, it's still here and it's killing thousands of people. Hundreds of people are dying a day still. And there are cases increasing in states all across this country. Now, the good news is in some states, it is leveling out and going down like New York, my home state of New Jersey, and a couple of other places. But the bad news is after these protests and the Memorial Day weekend holiday where people are just fed up and they're not wearing masks anymore and they're just kind of going back to normal, I guess if you want to call it that, cases are re-emerging and they're surging in states like Texas, Arizona, uh, Florida, Oklahoma. Yeah, all places that Trump plans on doing rallies in the next two weeks. And there's been big controversy over him making the decision to go to Tulsa, Oklahoma, on June 19th for uh, uh, his first rally in months. First of all, it's an insane health risk. Even though the mayor is kissing Trump's ass and saying, oh, yeah, we're, we look forward to them co- to them coming here, blah, blah, blah. The health department director was like, uh, if you have any advice, do I have any advice for, for people who want to attend the rally? Don't. I wish that he would postpone this and not do this now. Yeah, no kidding. It's a Petri dish of transmitting COVID. These idiot Trump people now believe that wearing a mask is some kind of political statement. Trump himself even said that, oh, wearing a mask just shows that, shows that you don't support me. Everything is not about you, you crazy fool. But besides that, it has nothing to do with you. It has to do with a health issue. It's safer to wear a mask so people don't transmit COVID-19. It's, it's mind-blowing. So these Trump cultist idiots refuse to wear masks against their own health interests because they, you know, they don't want to look weak or because Trump doesn't want, um, doesn't want to wear a mask. I mean, it's asinine. It is asinine. It's even translated over to AMC movie theaters. I just read a story today that said AMC, the CEO said they would not require masks in the theaters that they reopen. That is absurd. My husband and I, we go to the movies all the time. It's one of our favorite things to do. And we're AMC moviegoers. We're part of the Stubbs AMC frequent moviegoer club and all that. I won't step foot in an AMC theater again if this is how they're going to conduct themselves. We're in the middle of a global pandemic. It's not political. It's safety, you morons. I just read an an article two weeks ago that said that the AMC theater chain may not make it financially because of COVID. And now this is the decision they make. I just, it's absurd. So one of the other reasons why um, this this upcoming rally is has caused a lot of consternation. And by the time some of you listen to this podcast, it'll probably have already happened. 
But it's because of the location and the day that Trump chose to do this. Now, he moved it from June 19th to the 20th because of the backlash. But why was there a backlash? Well, a lot of people don't know the history, the racial history in the city of Tulsa, and they don't know the significance of the date June 19th in American history. So I'm just going to give you a brief overview. You're welcome to Google and look more, look it up more. And I think you should because it is both of these incidences are are um, parts of history that are ugly, but have not been taught enough. And um, we need to talk about them. So I'll start with June 19th. So in the black community, Juneteenth is a day that has been celebrated for, you know, since 1866. Um What is it? Juneteenth is the date when the final slaves were freed in this country, in Texas. We all know the Emancipation Proclamation happened in 1863, April of 1863. Well, word didn't get out everywhere in the country where there were still slaves. And it took over two years for the word to get to slaves, 250,000 of them, by the way, in Texas, that they had been freed. General Granger showed up with 2,000 Union troops on Galveston Island on June 19, 1965, letting them know, the war is over, you're free. And that obviously turned into a huge celebration. Now, history has, some historians believe that part of the reason why slave owners suppressed that information was because they were trying to get another uh, cotton harvest out of the slaves that they had. So they didn't honor the Emancipation Proclamation right away until it had to be enforced by Union soldiers who came in. So the celebration of Juneteenth is something that's been within the black community for a long time. But Donald Trump seems to think that because of the flap, now he, nobody's ever heard of Juneteenth. He's made it famous. Really? (laughs) Maybe he's drawn more attention because of the protests and what's going on. But, um... People had heard of Juneteenth. Now, it's not regularly taught historically, and I hadn't learned about it in high school. It wasn't until college, actually, that I learned about Juneteenth. Trump actually said that he made Juneteenth famous. This guy is just unreal. But part of the celebrations of Juneteenth, um, back when they first started, it was a sense of racial pride because a lot of the celebrations um, for Juneteenth every year would happen on black owned properties because remember slaves couldn't own property. So it was a sense of pride and progress to be able to have these celebrations um, on black owned properties. So there is a long history in the black community about Juneteenth. I'm glad more people are learning about it because it's an important part of history. And in Texas, um, it became a state holiday in, uh, I believe it was 1980. I think it was 1980, uh, it became a state holiday. And there's a push now for it to become a recognized paid state holiday in other states like Virginia and New York. Um, Senator Cornyn has now proposed making it a federal holiday. So we'll see. I think it should be. I I really do. A lot of people don't know that the, even though the Emancipation Proclamation freed the slaves, it didn't apply to some states And there was still slavery going on even after the Emancipation Proclamation had been issued. And and I didn't know this 
that New Jersey was one of those states. That there was slavery in New Jersey that was one of those states. There's also Klan in New Jersey, which is, that's a whole other thing, South Jersey. But anyway, um, Delaware, Kentucky, these places still had slavery going on. That's why the 13th Amendment had to be passed in order to abolish slavery everywhere. And of course, 13th Amendment was passed in January of 1865 and ratified in December that year. So a lot happened in 1865. Well, we need to know this. It's history. Um, and the same thing with Tulsa. So Tulsa, Oklahoma was the site of one of the worst racial massacres in this country that no one ever heard of for a long time because the news accounts and the history of that had been suppressed for decades. It happened in 1921. Back then, Tulsa was known as the Black Wall Street. Well, they didn't really call it that back then, but it, it grew to become known that because Tulsa, Oklahoma was a prosperous city after World War I because of an oil boom. So it was the, known as the oil capital of the world at one point. And it went from like a small village to 100,000 people and a thriving city with a population of over 10,000 African-Americans. And they were thriving. And they, you know, there was some jealousy, racial jealousy. Some white folks didn't think that black folks should have anything and they, that they deserved to be well off or have businesses. And in 1921, a black, uh, a black teenager got onto an elevator with a white woman who was an elevator operator. She screams, he gets scared, he runs out of the elevator, and rumors start that he sexually assaulted her. Next thing you know, the, the, the word spreads, an angry white mob is looking for this teenager. His name was um, Dick Rowland. And he ends up getting picked up by the sheriff's department. They hold him in custody, and this mob descends on the courthouse demanding that, that he be lynched, basically. Because now, after post-World War I, you had a re-emergence re of the Ku Klux Klan, and there were some racial tensions coming back again. And this happened in Tulsa. And so once this angry mob was there demanding that, they, that the sheriff release this teenager so they could exact vigilante justice on him, the sheriff refused to his credit. Some black World War II veterans, armed, went to the courthouse, 25 of them, to try to protect this kid. Well, the angry mob grew, and it went from a couple dozen white folks to 1,500. So the black armed uh, uh, citizens were way outnumbered, and it created an unbelievable situation, and shots were fired. And that started a series of really awful events where um, the angry white mobs went into the Greenwood District, which was the black district in Tulsa, and basically burned it to the ground. By the time it was said and done, this happened on May 31st, 1921, went on for a day. By the time it was all said and done, 8,000 people were homeless, 35 blocks had been obliterated, and they're not even quite sure how many people were killed because in the beginning, um, numbers disputed, but up to 300 were killed, maybe more. And when firemen tried to go and put out the fires in the neighborhood, armed white crazy people threatened the firefighters and told them, don't you dare put the fires out in these neighborhoods. Yeah, 
They actually firebombed the neighborhoods. There were airplanes flying overhead, dropping firebombs on this black community. They burned everything down. So not only did that happen, once the National Guard was sent in because martial law was declared, they still had to um, stop these angry mobs, white mobs from killing and destroying more black properties. It was a disaster. And the newspaper did suppress this information. They, they blacked out the information on this for decades. It wasn't taught in school. It was actually removed from the news archives, from the front page news archives of the Tulsa News back then. Yeah, they tried to whitewash the history of what actually happened. They tried to imply that it was a race riot. No, it was a massacre. The first book that was actually written about this was in um, 1982, where the first real comprehensive history about what happened in Tulsa was written. It wasn't until 1996 when the first mention of it on television at the 75th anniversary of it. So this wasn't taught in schools. And the history was just not well known. Finally, in 2001, a commission was set up and it was called the Tulsa Race Riot Commission. And they had to fight to try to get this taught in schools and put in the curriculums. It wasn't until 2004, I think, or 2009, where it was finally put in textbooks. Yeah. And finally, in 2018, the name of the commission was renamed the Tulsa Race Massacre Commission, because that's, that's what it was. It wasn't a race riot. It was a massacre. And that made a difference because that's more accurate with what happened. So that's the history behind those two places. And that's why people were furious that Donald Trump would choose Tulsa on June 19th for his first rally, because we all know that he's a racist and a bigot and doesn't give two shits about the racial history of this country. He doesn't think that systemic racism exists, remember? So in the moment that we're in, this was just, it was just so insensitive. So we moved it to the 20th, big deal. But I just, um, I just thought it was important for people to know that history. And in that context is where we have, you know, the, the continued protests, not as big as they were a couple weeks ago, but still going on. A couple controversial police encounters have, have happened, um, including what happened recently, a shooting in Atlanta of a, of a man named Rashard Brooks, who... Um, we're going to talk about that, actually. I'm going to talk about that with, with my guest coming up and this idea of defunding the police, which is the worst possible word. Clearly, no one ever focus grouped that. Reinventing, reorganizing, restructuring. There are so many other things because I think there's a legitimate conversation to be had about police reform and policing in this country. But the idea of defunding the police is just... It just gives the messaging, just gives Donald Trump and his people and Fox News something to blather on about and add it to the list of fear mongering going into the election. So that is uh, no bueno on the part of a part of my progressive friends here. You guys better come up with something different, because if I have to watch a John Oliver segment to explain what that actually means, then that's like you're losing the argument. So um, so we're going to talk about more of that. Coming up next, I think it's time for me to bring in retired Lieutenant Darren Porter.
time in this country for the last couple of weeks and the issue of systemic racism and policing and justice in this country is really a complicated one. And everyone knows that I come from a law enforcement family and you know these I try to look at these issues from a balanced point of view, which is why I felt it was important to bring on my next guest to have this conversation. He is a criminal justice professor at Pace University. He has a PhD from Fordham. He spent 20 years in the NYPD, retired as a lieutenant. He's an army veteran, and he's also a black police officer. I want to welcome Dr. Darren Porcher to Honestly Speaking with Tara. LT, thank you for joining me. Tara, thanks for having me. Always a pleasure sitting down and having these conversations over topical issues that impact on our society. Thank you for making the time. I've, um, I've thought about you often over the last couple of weeks as I've watched things unfold because you bring such a unique perspective to everything and a balanced one, given that you are a black man in America, law enforcement, PhD professor, NYPD. Your, your experience, I think, is one that is incredibly valuable for people to hear. So... With that said, um, we're gonna have a we're we're gonna have a conversation today <laughs> that okay. I think is uh, overdue. I want to start about uh, I want to start uh, talking about what happened in Atlanta. Um, that's a couple days ago. We saw a video of another black man being shot by police and killed in Atlanta, and um, you know, and it's it's caused renewed protests in the country. And I just think that it's not as cut and dry as the George Floyd case in Minneapolis. The Rashard Brooks case in, in Atlanta, uh, for those who have not heard, he was um, asleep in a Wendy's drive through apparently because he was too drunk to drive. The police were called. They get him to pull over. He's, they're talking to him for almost 30 minutes. Um, and it eventually... He gets into a tussle with the police once they determine that he is, in fact, drunk. He takes a breathalyzer. He resists arrest. He disarms one of the police officers with his taser, takes his taser from him, starts to run. He turns. He shoots, goes to shoot the taser at the police officer, and the officer ends up shooting him, and he dies from his wounds. This is one of those cases where people are saying, well, why couldn't they just drive him home? And he wasn't, you know, that that didn't mean he had to lose his life over this. In your experience, Darren, what did you see when you saw that video and this case? Well, for starters, my heart goes out to the Brooks family in the wake of the death of Mr. Brooks. I mean, this was a tragedy, to say the least. But we have to compartmentalize that action as to what it was. Let's start from the beginning. The police responded to a 911 call that described a male that was intoxicated that was sleeping in his car in the driveway of Wendy's. Patrons that were looking to, uh, to patronize Wendy, so to speak, they didn't have the ability to access the drive through So that's why the police came there in the first place. So the police respond and they see the um, they see Mr. Brooks and the interaction seems to be sound. You know, when I look at the uh, interpersonal communication between both the officers and Mr. Brooks, this runs for roughly 30 minutes and it seems to be sound. Look what's going on. Uh, everything is OK. Uh, you know, I'm sleeping in my car. 
And then the officers make the assessment of this may possibly be, be a person that is intoxicated behind the wheel of a motor vehicle. DWI is not a discretionary offense. So I've heard many people make um, that same point of contention that, look, you know what? They could have just locked his car and let him go or even driven him home or called an Uber and have him and he could have been removed. And that would have been the end of the encounter. I understand that from a civilian's perspective, but you have to look at it from a public safety uh, w within the purview of public safety. Mm -hmm. This is an individual that was driving drunk. Um, we can't allow people to drive drunk with impunity. Now, granted, he was asleep in the car, but he, they, the officer had him conduct a field sobriety um, test, which he was complying in, and he failed. So now the decision was made, okay, we need to place Mr. Brooks under arrest. So in the process of uh, attempting to place him under arrest, the, uh, one of the officer's tasers was forcefully removed through the fight with Mr. Brooks. Mr. Brooks now um, now is in possession of the taser and he's running away. Mr. Brooks is not throwing the taser to the floor after he he runs away from the officers. He's continue he's continuing to hold that taser and even in the process of being chased, he turns and points the taser at the officers. Now, you have to put yourself in the officer's shoes. I'm one, I'm in a position where is the average citizen does not assault the police and take a weapon from the, from the officers. That's, that's not what the average citizen does. But now the officer's saying, okay, I was involved in a violent struggle with a, a person that's intoxicated that assaulted me and removed my taser. So let's look at the, the threat level. It's going up the thermometer. And so in the process of Mr. Brooks fleeing from the scene, Mr. Brooks turns and aims the taser at one of the officers, or it could be both of the officers, because when we look at the um, the macro view from Wendy's, when I say the um, mm -hmm. the macro view, the this is the universal view, right? Yeah, this, but this is giving you a more right. This is giving you a more comprehensive overview of the incident, as opposed to when we look at the officer's um, body camera um, shot. That's more or less giving you a micro assessment. But that macro assessment that's uh, provided by the Wendy's camera shows the chase ensues. I want to say they run um, several yards. And in the process of running, um, Mr. Brooks turns towards the officer and points the taser. Now, and he the discharges officer, it, doesn't he? It looks yes, to me like yes, it was yes, discharged. Was, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. it was. I was going to get to that. But um, so not only does he turn and um, point the taser towards the officers, he engages the taser by pulling the trigger on the um, the taser. Now, what happens with a taser is this. It's listed as a non-lethal weapon. And what it does is it, 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 um, it propels two, I, I want to, um, two metal prongs, so to speak, that go into a person and the officer is, he, he or she will pull the trigger and it sends a jolt of electricity. Now, Mr. Brooks is in the position where he is the holder of this taser. He turns. He fires the taser. When I say he fires, meaning he uh, he engages the taser, and I don't believe it hits either one of the officers. Now the officer's threat level is increasing as a result of this interaction. The officer turns and fires. Um, I want to say it's uh, three three rounds, if three I'm not shots. mistaken, yeah. mm -hmm. right? And Mister Mister Brooks subsequently falls to the ground and collapses. Now. 
there are two narratives that can be introduced into this equation. The first narrative is what we see in most of the mainstream media is Mr. Brooks was killed by police violently and in no way, shape or form should this have been the action that was um, committed to by the officers. Now, if the officer comes into court and says, yeah, you know what? When I saw him take my taser and run away and he hit me or in the process of the fight, I was beaten up. I became so enraged that I lost it and I shot and killed Mr. Brooks. Now you're going to have a situation where Mr. Brooks is going to, uh, where the officer is going to be indicted and the chances are he will probably be convicted of a murder in that case. It would be a murder subdegree, um, second degree. Now, the second argument that the officer can introduce is, look, you know, through the process of the struggle, the, the fight for the taser and Mr. Brooks um, exiting the, um, the encounter, I should say exiting the encounter, but running away and being shot, this is all of maybe two to three seconds. There's a whole lot that happens and it's really fast. Mm -hmm. The officer can, can, if the officer states that, yes, my taser was removed and as a result of my taser being removed, he now, he meaning Mr. Brooks, has the ability to propel the two prongs in this taser into my body, which would cause me to be immobilized, subsequently allowing him to take a second weapon from me because he's already taken one of my weapons, one of my weapons, and he's using it. Now he's taking a second weapon. He's clearly exhibited behavior that he will use the weapon that he takes from police against me as an officer. And that put me in fear of my life. He has a damn good argument in that case. And then in addition to that, the mayor, um, Mayor Bottoms of Atlanta, I just thought that that was a very hasty action that she took. She failed to allow due process to play out because I just don't think this was, I don't think this was as clear cut as everyone thinks. And I just go back to, I was a lieutenant in the NYPD's Internal Affairs Bureau. I investigated many of these police shootings. Mm -hmm. And this is one of these police shootings that you really need to sit down and assess it frame by frame. It's going to take hundreds of hours to determine what the final um, outcome on this was. You can't make that, 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 that snap judgment and fire the guy. So due process failed to, um, to move in accordance. And it's unfortunate, but I can tell you this, you could have a lot of people that are going to be upset because if this officer subsequently wins based on what I just mentioned earlier, um, in terms of he was in fear of his life, one of his weapon, one of the one of the officer's weapons was already taken and used against him. The second weapon could have been taken had the um, Mr. Brooks pulled it, um, had the ability to engage the taser into one of the officers. The officer becomes immobilized. Then he can take his weapon. This is a continuous event, by the way. There's no stoppage. This right. all happens within two to three seconds. If he wins, if the officer wins um, in this case, now we're going to have a series of, of lawsuits that are going to come. One, the officer is going to be able to sue and get his job back. The officer can also sue the municipality based on a frivolous termination. Right. And, and lastly... The, the Brooks family will sue the city as well, and they will also settle in a Brooks case. Right. So we have three, three lawsuits that will simultaneously land in the lap of Atlanta. And this could have all been a lot of this. I should say all of it, but there's, I want to say two thirds of this could have been avoided had the mayor been willing to allow due process to play out. 
because we have a completely different narrative when we look at what happened in Minneapolis, Minnesota, in terms of Mr. Floyd's death. Right. Diametrically different instances. And I'm not going to go into the Floyd case now, but I'm just trying to give you a contrast yes. to comparison to as the where we are with the Brooks case. Which is um, why this I wanted is to not which is why I wanted to start with the Brooks case because it is okay. very, very different. And um those nuances in that interaction are important for people to understand. There's been uh, some new information. The district attorney there, Paul Howard in Fulton County, has now decided to bring 11 felony charges against uh, one of the officers, Officer Rolfe, and um, I think four felony charges against the second officer, the one that did not shoot. He was the one that was there, Brosnan. Um, I watched the DA's presentation and there was some new information that was brought to light uh, about the officer's conduct. Um, but I I'd like to know what your initial reaction is to the DA's decision to bring charges in this case. Well, I think that it was somewhat hyperbolic, but there were some um, substantive points that the district attorney brought out. One, kicking um, Mr. Brooks as he was laying on the floor. Um, we, we have an expression, um, you know how to kick a dead horse. I just thought that that went... That level of force was excessive, coupled with he was, I believe he um, he was being he was charged with standing or putting his foot on Mr. Brooks's shoulder, and I just think that that was somewhat of an inhumane um, instance. Whereas it could have been handled otherwise. We clearly had a situation where Mr. Brooks was on the ground, and as a result of Mr. Brooks being on the ground, I think immediately medical aid should have been dispatched to the scene. I also heard that the officer made a statement that was of an unprofessional nature, such as I got him or something to that effect. That leads credibility to this being an unprofessional act on the officer's part. But overall, um, I just think that this is going to be a really tough case for the district attorney to gain a conviction on, because one of the things that's going to happen is the jury pool is going to be required to be read when an office can use deadly physical force. And in that statement, it, it will read that if an officer perceives that um, a person, either be the officer or a third person, can be subjected to dead, um, deadly physical force or serious physical injury as it relates to what happened, then the officer can employ deadly physical force. So just based on that, I just think that this is going to be a Herculean stretch for the prosecution to gain a conviction. And I also understand this. The prosecutor is an, is an elected official. People in that community of Atlanta want blood. In the wake of what happened with George Floyd, we become somewhat hypersensitive in connection with police killing African-American males. I got that. That's been a systemic problem in our culture for years on end. So when we have this incident, what it does is it exacerbates our emotional state in connection with being over-policed in the communities of color. So now we look to the district attorney. All eyes are on him. Are you going to give us what we're looking for? And remember, the district attorney is an elected official. If he elected not to enter uh, or, or move forth with a series of charges, then it seems as if he folded like a chair and you're not doing what we put you in office to do. However, if the district attorney says, look, you know what, I'm going to charge this person to the maximum and I am going to insert this into the grand jury and the grand jury proceeding kicks back 
or they're not willing to um, forward what we refer to as a true bill. A true bill is an indictment. Then the district attorney can say, hey, look, I did everything in my power to prosecute this officer. However, the court system deemed otherwise. And let's say hypothetically this goes through and we do get an indictment. And all an indictment is, is the case merits going to a trial proceeding. So if that case subsequently goes into the trial proceeding and a district attorney loses in court, he can still save face and say, I did any and everything in my power to prosecute this office, officer, and it was the courts that struck down my prosecution. So it's a win-win for the prosecutor, no matter how you look at it, if he chooses to introduce two charges, as we have the 11 charges as a result. That's interesting, um, because I think some people look at the Freddie Gray case in Baltimore, where a similar situation happened as far as the, the political climate warranted um, overcharging. And when it eventually went to trial, those officers were acquitted because the the DA there made the decision um, to charge things that they were unable to prove in court, where if she had charged them differently, they may have gotten the conviction and justice in some people's eyes. So I think there's Tara, a lot. Tara, yeah. Tara, yeah. I'm sorry, not to interrupt you, but this is a germane component that yeah. I neglected to introduce into the discourse. The Georgia Bureau of Investigation had not completed their investigation. They were they That's have right. they have yet to introduce the findings of this of this police shooting. However, the district attorney moved forward prematurely, I genuinely believe, in introducing a series of charges. I'm telling you, for me being a prior lieutenant in the NYPD's Internal Affairs Bureau, I've investigated many of these police shootings. It takes hundreds of hours to collect the data or the discovery connected with this with any particular shooting. And therefore, then you have to formulate a report. You have a um, witnesses that need to be interviewed. There's an immense level of labor that goes into one of these shooting investigations. So for the, the, um, the prosecutor to move forward without gaining the findings of the Georgia Bureau of Investigation clearly lets me know, or it runs consistent with my theory of the district attorney moving forth from his personal agenda and not the agenda of the people. Yeah, that you know that's going to be a very unpopular position to take <laughs> because of the emotions that are running so high and and when you look at the tragedy of someone losing their life, it's you know, it's tragic and it's uh, you know, you wish that we it didn't have to get to the point that it got to, but there were a series of events. I mean, I I initially was uh, reticent to pass any judgment on this case. I didn't tweet about it initially. I was waiting because there were so many factors that go into um, a, a shooting like this. And so people were blasting me. What do you mean you, you didn't, he got shot in the back. What was there, what was there to, to, you know, wait and see about? And I'm like, it's not that simple. So what do you say to the people who are, are looking at this and saying, well, these, this officer was clearly in violation of, of his duties um, you know, he, they, they also said in the, in the press conference that apparently under Atlanta P PD standard standards of operating procedure, that you're not allowed to tase someone who's running away from you. Um, that's interesting, but okay. So that, that he was in violation of that, um, former police officer, uh, police chief, Charles Ramsey, uh, former police chief in Philly and DC. He said that initially he too didn't think that it warranted 
criminal charges until he heard the additional information that we just you know brought up before about them kicking him and standing on him and not rendering aid for two minutes. Um, those are criminal charges, and so that, that legitimately yeah. can be criminal charges for those acts because we look at an assault, the failure to uh, render medical aid. Absolutely, I can see uh, um, a grouping of charges that would connect with that. So that I agree with. Okay, but the, but you think it's a bit premature for the felony murder part. I just think that we should await the findings of the Georgia Bureau of Investigation and the findings on that investigation would predicate if we're going to move forward with probable cause to actually uh, arrest and introduce in this into a grand jury with the 11 charges. It's just too soon. Yeah, you, you can see that a lot of folks are very emotional about this because anytime we have an officer-involved shooting, especially if it's a white officer with a black male, it, it reignites the conversation about, well, there's systemic racism. And even if he did comply, which is what I've heard, I've got into some arguments with people of this. Well, you know, he was cooperative and polite, but the police were trying to, to entrap him to admit that he had committed a, a crime with drunk driving. So even if you do comply, we end up dying in police custody anyway. So why bother? And, I, and I'm like, that's not the way to go about handling situations like this that uh, we can talk about the larger problems and how we approach them but in the immediate moment at the time it's you cannot sit here and say that uh, resisting arrest is a reasonable way to handle a situation like that when you have officers who have to make split-second decisions like you said I want to ask you a question for for the um the idea of the use of force continuum. Can you explain to people what that is? Because you mentioned that the threat level elevated and oftentimes people don't understand what the thought process is for officers when they get in, when they're in, um, when they encounter a deadly force situation. Sure. The force continuum or use of force continuum starts with an officer's presence. Omnipresence is the first component. With omnipresence, that's just the mere officer's presence in many ways can be a deterrent in connection with the use of force. It's technically a level of force. Just you being there, um, flesh and blood, and, and giving a sense of a level of commands. Police don't move. Turn around. Let me see your hands. That is the first level of the force continuum. The second level to the force continuum is something that we refer to as the empty hand. The empty hand technique is now when an officer uses physical force, meaning their two hands to restrain an individual or, or to, to, to restrain an individual, so to speak. So it, it could also consist of an officer maybe gra um, taking a punch at someone. But that is the empty hand technique. We want to think in terms of the officer is not applying any additional force outside of the physical strength. The, um, the, third, uh, the, the third level of the force continuum, and it, it kind of, I want to say, bifurcates or even trifurcates at this stage, is you have an assemblance of non-lethal weapons that consist of either pepper spray, um, which is, you know, an old resin, old resin capsum device that, you know, you spray it in someone's eye, you have cayenne pepper, and uh, I say Kanye, Kanye Pepper. Cayenne. And, <laughs> yeah. Right, right, exactly. Some yeah. people react that to Kanye West Kanye the same way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the Kanye Pepper, right, right. Cayenne Pepper is one. And then you also have a baton. Um, now, different departments vary in the type of the baton that they may use. 
a large majority of police departments in America are now using something we refer to as an ass baton. The ass baton is an expandable baton. And what it is, is it's roughly, I want to say maybe six inches high, but when you strike it on the floor, it now expands into a, a, a steel um, a steel baton, so to speak. And then the le- and the third the third piece is the uh, the taser. Now you have other departments that have other non-lethal weapons that they apply, they, they can deploy, such as bean bags and things to that effect. But I just want to I want to trificate to those three um, those three means of non-lethal uh, weapons that police across the country generally use. The taser falls within that purview of those non-lethal weapons. Now, in terms of how do you escalate? from your um, the first level in the force continuum that consists of just your physical presence all the way up to, um, oh, and another thing, I forgot after that. So those are the non-lethal weapons. After the non-lethal weapons, then you have the, um, the, the, the use of deadly physical force, and that's, of course, a firearm, your sidearm, so to speak. So you don't necessarily have to go from the progression of, okay, I, I'm here in a physical state and just the physical presence is, is um, the first level of the force continuum. I don't need to go through step one, step two, step three, and then that's how I end up at, de- at, at deadly physical force. It, it's de- it's dependent upon the officer's perception of the situation. And I'll give you an example. An officer responds to a domestic dispute in someone's house. He comes in, he or she comes into the house and the officer observes a, a male assaulting his wife. The physical presence is there, okay, where it's step one. But then in the process of the officer telling the individual to stop assaulting his, um, his wife, that individual turns with a gun, turns around with a gun. The officer doesn't have to go through all the non-lethal um, levels in the force continuum. Right. He, she can go straight to deadly physical force and shoot that individual if it's a situation where the person is not dropping a weapon. Can, so, I, can I just well, ask something about that? Some sure. people don't realize that it's not only if you assess that the person is a threat to you, but also to the people around you, right? Exactly. That person is um, that person poses a risk of deadly physical force or serious physical injury to not just the officer, but a third party. And the third party, as you mentioned, Tara. It can be somebody right next to you. It could be someone in the next room. But it, there's another person that is at risk of serious physical injury or death as a results to as it relates to your actions. So, in the case so, here in Atlanta, where um, as as Rashard Brooks was running away, um, there's about there's a couple seconds, like not even a couple seconds. There's like a second between when he discharges the firearm and he's turned in what they call a bladed position. Um, and when he turns back and continues to run, and that's when the officer discharges his weapon and shoots him. And they're saying that he was shot in the back. In your, in your experience as a, an internal affairs officer who investigated all kinds of police shoots, is that the part of this that makes it questionable of whether it was a justified shoot or not? Is it those, those second, that second and a half right there? Where he could have possibly done something differently, and that's where they're gonna they could potentially find fault. Well, when we go to you know a person being shot in the back, there's nothing that prohibits an officer from shooting someone in the back. And I hear this all the time. Well, somebody was shot in the back, that means that they were running away. I can give you a case, an example of a case, and I'm not going to give you the name, but um, it was 
there was a person that was running away from police. And this individual actually was in possession of a firearm. He, he would take five steps. He would turn around and fire, uh, fire a couple of rounds. He would take another five, six steps. He turns around and he fires. And so what happened was the officers fired. They shot him in the back in this same particular case because this individual presented in an immediate danger of, uh, of a serious physical injury or death to not just the officers, but someone else because right. these rounds can go past the officer right. and hit someone else. So we had, I think might have pulled five, uh, there might have been five bullets that came out of this guy's back. I can't remember. This was some years ago, but he was shot in the back. No, this was never a problem. Oftentimes people play Call of Duty, they watch movies and whatever's on Netflix, and that's how they orchestrate their understanding of the criminal justice system or police procedures. And it goes back to what you mentioned earlier in terms of someone posing a, uh, a threat of, um, of serious physical injury or death. And it's how does the officer view this? What is the prism that the officer views this in? If the officer perceives that he or she is in danger of a serious physical injury or death, and I gave you the two different narratives that the officer can introduce. One, right. if he says, look, you know, this is what it was, of course he's going to jail. But the second part, the second um, narrative that I introduced was the officer perceived that he was um, in danger of a serious physical injury or death because this was a continuous event that ran roughly two to three seconds and the officer had already been assaulted and his weapon was removed. Therefore, this is clearly someone that exhibits behavior of taking the police officer's weapon and using it against them. And as you see, just before the first round was fired, Mr. Brooks was turned in that bladed position right. and the taser. Yep. And that, that you know... It's unfortunate because um, there's such a quick rush to judgment now because emotions are running so high that it introduces um, a lot of different aspects to policing that I just think the average person doesn't understand, which is why um, I'm a big advocate of people going through citizen police academies if they allow them. Um, I participated in one in South Florida uh, about a decade and a half ago. And I mean, I already come from a law enforcement family, as many people know, so I, I understand a lot of these nuances and, and scenarios and decision-making better than a lot of other people do. But even going through that experience, seeing what officers um, encounter, why they make the decisions they make, um, putting you through those types of scenarios and what would you do and with the discretion you would use, it's very eye-opening. And I know that not every community can do this, but I just think that if more people understood what those steps are, how you get there, why you make those decisions, there wouldn't be such a rush to judgment for some officers in these scenarios because every scenario is different. You know, what happened here with Rashard Brooks is very different than what happened to George Floyd, which is different than what happened to Michael Brown, which is different than what happened to Alton Sterling. You know, they, they in this movement now, there's the, the Black Lives Matter movement has named a lot of different cases where the nuances of those cases are just, they call for different points of action. Um, so when, which leads me into the conversation uh, about the George Floyd protests and this conversation about systemic racism in policing. When you saw what happened to George Floyd, uh, when you watched that video, what was your, what was your reaction? Um, my, uh... I mean, my throat was in my stomach when I saw that. It just—it was far from, you know, it, it was far from <laughs> quintessential policing, to say the mm -hmm. least. But 
I, I felt that there was a systemic problem in the department. The reason why I felt that there was a systemic problem in the department because the person that is, the organizational structure sets the tone. And when you have officers commit to certain acts in broad daylight, surrounded by the public, it told me that the temperament in that department was we as the department will back you for whatever you do in the street. So feel free to do what you're doing. And if you look at um, Officer Chavin's, former Officer Chavin's knee, the way it's placed on his, uh, on Mr. Floyd's neck, Officer Chavin seems to be somewhat relaxed. His right. hands are hands on his in hips. His right, yeah. right, right. Exactly. It's like it's no big thing. Yeah. I'm ready to order lunch. Right. Okay. Which don't is... worry about it. I'm, I'm, you know, I, I got this covered. Just yeah. order me a pizza <laughs> and, and a large soda. And he's just in such a state of calm. And what's that? What's that dictated to me was the organal, the, the 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 tone was not set within the organizational structure. Now, one may argue that there's an African American chief of police. That may be the case, but he may be so dispatched, um, dis- excuse me, so detached from the rubber that meets the road. Those first line supervisors, such as the sergeants, those are the people that the officers oftentimes engage. And if you don't set forth a precedent on the procedural guidelines being adhered to, that's what you have. And I give you, you know, you asked me how I felt. If I was a lieutenant, well, for one, that wouldn't have happened with any of my guys. Um, I was working the night where um, Amadou Diallo was shot and killed in that doorway. Mm. Those weren't my guys in the street crime unit. I responded to that. I was a sergeant at the time. And I remember it was, I, I remember specifically saying that, man, you know what? There was no supervisor on the scene. Whenever you have plainclothes um, cops, you need to have a supervisor out there. But there was a lack of supervision. But when we go back to the situation with Mr. Floyd, I believe that there was a lack of supervision. The supervisory matrix wasn't sound. The tone wasn't set accordingly. So I, although I hear the chief of police speaking in a, from a place of acrimony in connection with, with, Officer, with Officer Chavin's actions, you are ultimately responsible because you are the person that is that that implements a set of right, um, supervisory right right supervisory matrix, and you just didn't do it. So you know it was one of those things where it, it just I was it was heartfelt, and I don't know if it was racism. I think that it was a lot of uh, entitlement, so to speak. Right? Everyone says this was a racist act. I'm sure that there was, you know, I'm sure that there's racism in all police departments, but there's just such a surreptitious means in how racism, racism is applied that it's very difficult unless you, you have a situation where a guy says, look, N-word, I'm going to kill you because you're black or something to that effect. I right. just think it's difficult to tie that into the equation. But it goes back to the, uh, the actions of racism now are more surreptitious than they are overt and direct. So in your opinion, then, do you do you feel as though that this uh, what seems to be a national racial reckoning in policing? Do you feel that 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 this is necessary, that there is that there needs to be an acknowledgement of institutionalized racism um, within the criminal justice system and in policing that should be addressed? I mean, you worked in the NYPD, which is the largest police force in the country. You know, the end it is New York's finest. But they've also had their own share of problems. What, also, have New you, York's weakest. Yeah, yeah. Have you um, 
Have you did you experience that while you were an officer there? And and you know, are these the people who deny that systemic racism exists in policing? Are they are they right? Or is this overblown? What what's your what's your thought about that as a as an African American law enforcement professional for over twenty years? Well, is systemic racism a practice that's in place with all departments? I believe it is. I think that um, you, as the uh, the chief executive in the department, in many ways shoulders vicarious liability for the inability to assess that it is in play. And when we look at the quantitative statistics in terms of the inordinately high number of African Americans that have been killed in, in in engagements with police for low level offenses or not armed, so to speak, it's clear that there's been a precedence that's in play that hasn't been addressed. We go back to the early 1990s with the Rodney King riots or the beating of Rodney King. You know, every last officer that stepped on the stand stated that we're not racist. This was an action that was driven by Mr. King. I just think that that action in that in that particular case clearly set forth that there was an undertone in that department that you can do this to African-Americans. Mm-hmm. Those are teachable moments in 1992 that we failed to connect with. And what it did was it just continued to manifest. The rioting stopped. We had all levels of politicians and celebrities that said that we're going to take this to another place like what's happening right now. And then six months later, it was business as usual. There needs to be what was systemic racism. There needs to be systemic change. If you don't have the systemic change, the history is going to repeat itself. And I genuinely believe that history is going to repeat itself as well as what happened to Mr. Floyd. Or one may even argue what happened to Mr. Brooks may be a case of racism. I don't have qualitative information or empirical empirical data that can support racism in either case, but I do think that this is a byproduct of over-policing and an inability for a department to apply um, a, a regulatory process that can ensure that these things don't happen. We just don't have the right stakeholders at the table. We don't have police executives, community leaders, and elected officials that are engaging in an ongoing discourse in terms of benchmarks that need to be met, nor is there an assessment phase. We oftentimes, we put, like the president just moved forth this agenda of a, a series of reforms, no chokeholds, training, things, things to that effect. But I just don't, I, I see that as more window dressing than anything else. The way you can affect change is after you implement a, seed, a, a series of procedural guide, guidelines, you need to reevaluate it for its effectiveness. It could be three months, six months, or a year later. And you need to make those tweaks accordingly. And you have to look at, are the quantitative statistics going down? Do we have less use of force complaints? Do we have less death in custodies? Do we have less instances of people injured by police? That's going to be the telltale sign as to if what you're doing is working or not. And I've never, I repeat, never have I ever seen a system of reform that's been implemented that 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 the um, the presiding authority look back on to assess the effectiveness. It's never happened, and the same thing is going to happen now. That's interesting. So you don't do so. You don't think that the reforms that are putting that are being put forth by the president are necessarily enough to make an impact long term to actually change things in the system. Um, what about the idea? of, um, well, codifying it legislatively. So you have Congress, you have the Democrats and Republicans are trying to work on a bipartisan bill 
to to codify some of these changes, like banning chokeholds and um, implementing the the database for misconduct, because police police officers can go from one department to the next, and if they have a, a misconduct uh, record that doesn't necessarily carry over, you don't know if they don't if they're not honest about it. Um, some of those things I would think are good on the surface, but what are some examples that you th- of things that you of reforms that you think really could have an impact? Um, if you had the magic wand and you had the ability to change it, what would it be? Would it be at a federal level or would it be at a local level or both? All right. To your, to your first point, there are things, I think this is all reactive. Um, it's not proactive. When I see, when I say reactive an officer's discipline record following from one department to the next, the officer already beat the heck out of somebody in one department. What did we do to stop it in the first place? Mm -hmm. I think that it's necessary for us to have that universal, um, communication on an officer's discipline record when they were in a department. But once again, this is all reactive, not proactive. When we, when we look to the chokehold, um, the, the chokehold uh, component there, most police departments prohibit the use of a chokehold. In case in point, in the NYPD, chokeholds are prohibited. When we look at Officer Pantaleo that uh, choked um, Eric Gardner, he was terminated because he used the chokehold. So a lot of departments utilize that standard, but what can be proactive? And the, the things that are drastic, that, that are germane, that are missing from this legislation is the psychological component. Before these officers come on the job, we need to have an effective means of screening in terms of what their psychological state is. Yes. Prior- cops. So what happens, we close, the, so we, in a situation like that, we close the gate before the person enters. And I think that is a proactive mechanism that should be employed. The second thing, professional development. Now, I heard um, professional development was a component that was being introduced in the legislation coming from the White House. I don't know how, you, I would have to look to see what the professional development, what the what the professional development consists of, what it consists of, uh, we need empirical we need empirical data that supports the professional development being introduced is sound. I want to see I want to see some some statistics that show me that okay this training that we're looking to implement has worked in this place and that place. I don't think that I don't think that that's there. I think it's just we got we, we, we stacked a bunch of sheets of paper together and we're just going to get this thing out there because it just happened too quick. In order for you to conduct an analysis on training, this takes a while. Right. And I know we want blood now. Everybody's saying like they're pounding on the desk and they're saying that look, we need some action and we need it now in the wake of what happened with George Floyd, but it's just impossible for you to have that systemic overview of, of training practices and implement it based on this executive order in such a short period of time. This takes time for you to see what works. And a lot of times what we do, we're guilty of this in the United States. We think we're the best nation on earth. And I genuinely believe that this is the best nation on earth, but we close ranks on accepting information from countries outside of America. And I think that we need to look to teachable lessons from other countries abroad, such as New Zealand, when they had the gun buyback program with the mass shooting. We want to see what the level of effectiveness was there. Different methods of enforcement or policing community engagements need to be extracted from other places. And we can now uh, administer or, or create a training module that is effective. It needs to be tested. And I give you a contrast in comparison. We're going through the COVID-19 pandemic. 
we have a trial process that's going on right now. There's been a series of different um, inoculations that have been developed. But the reason why this stuff is not being used because they're going through the clinical trials. The same holds true with training. Reflect on that same process. That's why I'm telling you that this is a farce. This is a hoax as you see this train that's being introduced. We need to evaluate it and it takes time to ensure that we have something that's sound. So that leads me to the idea of um, places where they have done things like this. And Camden, New Jersey is one of the uh, departments where people turn to, as an example of this whole defund the police, which is a movement now um, that I take issue with. I don't like the idea of, quote, defunding the police, whatever that means. Actually, I know what it means to me and how it's perceived. Um, Reinventing, reorganizing, uh, you know, refunding differently. There's all kinds of ways they could message us better. But the idea of of, t- of looking at what works in their community, which is what Camden did by dissolving their police department and absorbing it into the county police department and changing the way people are hired and the influence of the unions and um, those different things that I think that there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but you need to look at it on a department by department level. I don't know that a mass movement from a federal perspective to reorganize all police departments is the way to go. What, how do you feel about this movement about the defunding police? I think it's a lot of hyperbole and everyone wants to defund, but there's no plausible alternative to public safety. The first thing that I hear is, look, we just need to get rid of these cops, but no one has implemented or, or, or introduced a schematic of something that they believe would work. Now we look at what happened in Camden, for example, what they did was they restructured the police department. Right. They didn't, right, right? So, like, everyone uses that as as the model of superiority in policing, but all we did was we, we, we restructured it. All of the officers that were part of the department, they made them reapply. But it, and if you were a person that was in good standings, you were, uh, you were afforded your employment, the employment that you had prior to the restructuring process. And I give you an example that, you know, we look at when President, and I'm not, I, I'm not trying to go partisan or political with this, but President Obama had the Affordable Care Act. President Trump came in and said, I want to get rid of Obamacare, and I'm going to give you something better. Okay, he got rid of it. What was the plausible alternative? Nothing. Right. And the same holds true with this defunding of police, and it seems more, more as if it's a moratorium on law enforcement than it is for a reestablishment of a model that would be better. I just haven't seen anything. Show me, you know, show me the money. And, and that hasn't happened. Well, that's what hap- that's what's happening in Minneapolis right now. You know, the, the city council said, okay, we're, we're voting to be defund the police, but when pressed on, okay, well, what are you going to do? What's the next step? They don't really know yet. So but, but I'm like, also you know. what, what, Not to cut you off, but what yeah. also has happened in uh, Minneapolis, the city council was for it, but the mayor doesn't appear as if he's for it. Right. So it's um, and I, I believe that the mayor, I believe that the city council may be able to override the, the mayor's veto, but it's not etched in stone. I think what's happening now is you're having you having smart people that are coming to the table and saying, hey, look, be careful what you wish for, because you may get it. And let's say we pull out of this. Now, what are we going to use the model that's being um, erected in Seattle where. We've had people that have taken over a six-block radius, and they're just doing their own thing. Are you ready for that? Right. I'm 
trying to use fear fear mongering and scare tactics. But when we look at public safety, we need a sound plan in play to ensure that we are we are the recipient as citizens of quality or quintessential services because 90% of policing is service related we're only looking through the lens of the 10% that's enforcement related but there's a lot of things that cops do that are very that that are very much necessary in our society such as if you have a lost child um if some I'm not going to go down that day, yeah that we get on. the idea it's it's um you know it's it's kind of like you know in business it's uh you know, how much of it is customer service versus how much of it is actually producing a product. I mean, it's the same thing. You know, there's a lot of things that go on behind the scenes, which is why I wanted to ask you really quick. And then we have a couple minutes left because I know you have um, another interview to run to. But um, the, I, the, the fact that the show Live PD was canceled, I thought was really unfortunate. It was one of my favorite shows to watch because um, watching policing in real time, I felt was something that the public needed to see because you saw a lot of times the show was just, it was boring. You know, it wasn't cops where it was the highlight reel of the interactions. It was three hours of watching police officers on varied um, police departments across the country interact with the public. And, you know, you had some of the, you know, more interesting parts of police chases or whatever. But I just thought that the knee-jerk reaction to pull that show from A&E was an unfortunate one because I thought it was... um, it could have been it was more it was educational for people to see some of the other parts of of community policing and and not demonizing police all the time. What did you think about that? I think that this was a moratorium on police and just extending the boundaries of the acrimony between the police and the communities of color. And I felt that um, television felt that they needed to do something. I what what I saw were watching um Live PD was was interesting. I really believe that it introduced the level of transparency. It showed you the beginning, the middle, and the end of the encounter or the engagement. But I think also what what, what became problematic with Live PD was last year there was a death in custody of an individual with a car stop. And I think we all saw that. And then um, as a result of that being one of the incidents that was filmed, people felt the level of outrage. But this is all connected with the state of affairs in America in connection with what happened with George Floyd. Right. That's really what it is. It's right. nothing else. When we look at cops or live PD, these shows have been on for years, but it's now it's now as if we're looking to move forth the moratorium on policing and we're broad brushing and whatever in that lane of policing that can gain commerce, we're going to run it over. Uh, a quick uh your opinion on qualified immunity, just uh, back to the conversation we had. I was thinking, because you brought up how there's 90% of policing people, a lot of people don't see, and that it's a lot more than just arrests, uh, which is why I wanted to ask you about Live PD. But as we were talking about other reforms, I wanted to get your, your opinion on this, this talk now of possibly removing qualified immunity from police officers. Um, just quickly, briefly, if you can explain what qualified immunity is and whether you feel as though that's something that should be on the table. Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, the president mentioned that he wasn't in favor, or I should say, the you know, the Republican-controlled Senate is not in favor of removing qualified immunity. And that's just basically, it affords protections for an officer if they're working within their official capacity. So let's say, like, if you're doing something... Um, and if you're taking police action against another individual and this thing, but in you working within the purview of your duties and responsibilities, 
and something goes bad. So let's say somebody loses their life or something to that effect. It's more of an indemnification, meaning you're protected. Right. You can't That's be sued. Some... You can't be sued. Right. Right. Yeah. When I use the term indemnification, I apologize. That means no, that okay. I'm glad that you. I'm glad you cleared that. <laughs> See. That's why you're the moderator and I'm the guest. <laughs> and that's why you have a PhD. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's why, that's why they got you here, right? And so what happens, the problem with that is, the problem with pulling the qualified immunity is you have many instances where officers are acting in a place coming from good faith. But things just happen to go wrong. A person can have a medical condition or something to that effect. And let me give you an example. You come to one's house to take them into custody for a domestic dispute. And in the process of arresting someone for a domestic dispute, the officer uses his or her taser. Using the taser, and it was totally, it was completely justified. However, the person, unbeknown to the officer, was one that suffered from a heart condition. That individual subsequently has a heart attack and dies. If you remove qualified um, immunity, now that officer does not, he's not presented, he or she is not presented with a plausible defense in a court of law to protect them from lawsuits. And I just think that that's something that's necessary in policing because, unfortunately, this is a line of work where people lose their lives, be it police officers, civilians. It's something that happens because police are the first line of defense when it comes to interdicting violent people in our society. So we're, uh, we're going to have to come to an agreement on something outside of the the qualified immunity. And, uh, you know, one of these things is, let's say, hypothetically, we pull it from the table. Now you're going to have officers that are going to be very, very unwilling or resistant to do anything on the street, knowing that they can be sued. Sued Like, look, you know what? Absolutely. What about... um, I'm sorry, guys. No, that's okay. Um, What about the idea of, uh, of going after officers' pensions if they're convicted? You know, let's say there's like in the Derek Chauvin situation in Minneapolis, he's got a history of misconduct. He uh, ended up killing someone. He's fired. He's let's say he gets convicted. Um, Do you think that that's something that could be on the table as another way of of potential punishment? Because I think that people see feel like there's not enough accountability from on the other side of it. And uh, and I've said, and maybe you agree or not, that there has to be the police unions, the stakeholders in law enforcement have to do a better job of policing themselves to show that they're serious about holding bad cops accountable. Because they, you know, we say that there's only a few bad apples, which is probably true, you know. But some say, yeah, but that's just masking the fact that we have a systemic problem. So, what do you think about that as a possible? Uh, another area that could be explored for accountability. Accountability should always be on the table. And um, when we take in consideration uh, an officer's pension, I think if an officer is an active member of a department and they commit to an act of misconduct that warrants a termination and a removal of their pension, I think that that should be on the table. Now, the police unions are going to fight this tooth and nail because the membership pays dues it, with the expectation of being represented by the police union. So what the police unions do is they introduce uh, collecting, bar- collecting, collective bargaining, bargaining mm-hmm. um, experts, um, legal experts to defend the officers in, 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 in the trial proceeding, um, attorneys that will represent the officers through departmental um, cases of, be it misconduct. So that being said, 
the union will never be that entity that calls out an officer because the union is paid to protect the officer. Mm -hmm. That's like you having a defense attorney that says, okay, you know what? All right, I'm midway through this case, but I decided what you did was so wrong. I need to go to the prosecutor and and hand over everything that that I have against you that shows that you committed this crime. It's the same aspect when you look to the unions. The unions can buy into some things. And what I think the unions have failed miserably on is the unions have failed to engage the policing community the way they should. I think the, commu- the, the police unions should sponsor many more events that trigger or I should say allow that pathway for the policing community to, um, to intersect such as baseball games, uh, picnics, things to that effect. I think the unions do have the ability to provide funds for that and participate in, in, in those types of activities. And that's where the unions have failed miserably. And if you don't have that buy-in from the community, you're going to continue to have these events. Because if the community doesn't understand, like as you mentioned, the Citizens at Police Academy, that can be something that the unions are on board with and they even sponsor their own ride-alongs. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, look, we're going to take you around. We're going to show you what cops deal with. But the unions are so steadfast against anything that removes a, the rights of, a, of an officer coupled with they will stand in front of and defend anything, and I mean anything, that an officer does. But that just goes back to that's what you pay your dues for, your representation. You know, I, that's a good segue into the, into the final subject before I let you go, which is the, impo- the emphasis now on community policing versus the militarization of our police departments that I think has happened since 9-11. Um, there was a certain posture, and I'll, you can weigh in on this. There's a certain posture now where we've seen the response to 9-11 was uh, counterterrorism and being prepared for a mass casualty event. Um, and you also had a lot of officers who, who were Army veterans or, you know, Marines. They're veterans of the, of the military coming from Iraq and Afghanistan, bringing that mentality a bit of, uh, we're policing an insurgency versus being that the neighborhood community buy-in that we had before. I think that there has been some issues with that in some departments, which goes back to your um, your your suggestion of we've got to screen these guys better. Not saying that veterans aren't good police officers because a lot of them bring excellent skills to that, but I think we have to be able to screen those folks that understand their communities better. For example, in New Haven, Connecticut, and I I defer to this as an example often where they make officers walk the beat for almost two years before they can get into a patrol car because this way they uh, they know the community they have that that interaction where the community feels a buy-in and so does the officer same and they do it in the academy also where they make people become familiar and i think that that's something that we've got to place more emphasis on because when we see like in the protests um when we see the the police kind of being really heavy-handed in the way they handled the protests, that does not make people feel good about their community policing. Well, the optics of the use of force are always ugly. And, you know, I look at a lot of these protests and I look at the response by police. And I, in many cases, I think it's been questionable. However, in, um, in speaking in complete transparency, I haven't seen the interaction from the beginning, the middle, and the end. Many times I've just seen an officer race into a crowd 
and maybe spray people with, with pepper spray or something to that effect. And I'm like, wow, this is kind of crazy. It could have been handled differently. But it goes back to um, how, man, this, this, this thing is like really, you know, this, this kind of hits the soft spots with me. But it goes back to the, mili- the militarization. Should police have certain weapons? It's a slippery slope. And I'll tell you why. Many times, like right now at a time, at a time of calm, we feel that the police have too much. But the first major terrorist act, when we get a San Bernardino, California event that happens in New York City or another 911, people are going to bang on the desk and demand, why didn't the police have these weapons to protect us in society? So that being said, we can't, we, we're not looking to arm the, um, arm the police with tanks or anything to that effect. However, we do need to have specialized units that have the, the, these logistics at, 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 the, at a moment's disposal. They need to be trained officers and they need to be highly proficient in how to, well, training is, uh, well, the proficiency in training is one and, one and the same, but these officers need to be probably some of the most trained officers in the department. And we need to, I don't want to say ensure, but put ourselves in the best possible position that these these types of armaments, militarizations, are not going to be rolled out in the wake of the demonstrations, such as what we're seeing right now, because we don't want we don't want to have ourselves caught in a situation as ugly as Tiananmen Square when we go back to the ninety to, to the eighties when we had the military came come in and use an overt level of force. We don't want our police doing that. Or but what it's we a saw slippery... the, or what we saw in Lafayette Square on June first when the president decided to uh, unleash those tactics so he could get a photo op across the street with peaceful protesters. But go ahead. <laughs> I'll right. So, <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, hey, look, you, you can call that for what you what, what it is. You know, tear gas. You know what's interesting? I don't know if did you know that tear gas is, is prohibited under the G- Geneva Conventions Act, but at the same right. token, we on our, on our citizens here. You know, it begs the questions of uh, uh, do we live in a free society or not? But the militarization is something that we really mm-hmm. need to we need to treat from a from a delicate hand. Uh, we need the right people here. When you speak to the people who are coming back from the military, I'm speaking as a prior ar- army officer. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of these guys that I would never want to see carrying a gun, um, protecting us as citizens here, because it's a very different dynamic right. of being a soldier compared to policing, because it goes back to 90% of policing is service oriented. You need to have the ability and know how to, ha- to, to, to engage people that are dealing with situations from a humanitarian perspective, not a soldier's perspective. That's uh, that is a good point that I think is often uh, overstated. I mean, overlooked and understated. Um, different skill sets, and again, it just to summarize what you think are some of the reforms. Uh, you know, it's it's screening, vetting, it's making so making sure you root those bad apples out before they're in the force. It's um, it's it's acknowledging we have to acknowledge the systemic problems that are in our 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 criminal justice system and policing and working toward that uh, community policing is really, really important, um, as well as professional development, which means continued training, making sure these guys are getting, the, you know, access to what they need in, in the evolving atmosphere that we we live in um, and in the communities, making sure that professional development is consistent and, and I think that should be determined on a, on a local level. Um, but also the idea of supervision and accountability. Leadership at the top, it flows from the top, and the tone that you set in your department 
um, makes a huge difference when it comes to how they how they treat the, the community. Um, did I summarize that pretty well? You killed it. <laughs> anything else? Anything else you want to say before I let you go that you feel is important for people to in this moment that we're in? Because I think we're in an inflection point in this country. Is there anything else that you want to say about the moment that we're in and how we move forward in policing I, in this country? I think that this moment that we're going through is a teachable moment on how we're moving forward as a society. We need to understand that the African-American communities and uh, African-American community coupled with the, um, the people that are socioeconomically deprived have felt as if they've been the recipients of a miscarriage of justice and now we need to we need to move forward on a pathway that can ensure quintessential policing is applied to everyone, not the social, not not just not just the people that are in a place of um, of richness. Or uh, we need to look to the people at the bottom of the scale, and those are the individuals that are impacted the greatest. And when we look at what happened in the wake of the COVID nineteen pandemic, it was clear that the black and brown communities seem as if they were ravaged as a result of this COVID-19 pandemic, but it was socioeconomics. They just didn't have the resources. And this was a clear a reflection of, look, these people don't have the resources. So as a result, they're just going to get the short end of the stick. Policing is no different. The same thing is happening. Therefore, we need to make those adjustments accordingly. Well said, my friend. Darren Porcher, thank you so much for your time. Um, thank I hope you. We, we I look forward to, to returning. Yes, we're going to continue Provided to have these conversations because I don't think that, that it's over. This is not something that can be fixed overnight. It's going to be a long-term solution. So I appreciate your insight. Okay, thanks again. I hope to appear back soon. Again, another big thank you to Darren. I could talk to him all day. Um, and I think I'll probably have him back because he, he just really brings a fresh and different and experienced perspective on what's going on. And we need to have a sobering conversation about policing in this country and real reforms. And I think now we have that opportunity. So big thank you again to Darren. So that's it for this week's edition of Honestly Speaking. Thank you for listening. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't. Follow me on Twitter at Tara Setmayer. Follow the podcast at Honestly underscore Tara. And Father's Day is coming up. So happy Father's Day to all the great dads out there. And remember... Wear a mask when you go out. Be safe. It's not political. (laughs) All right. I'll see you next episode.